So what we're going to do is we're going to open up the Bible and uh, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John and God is going to show His grace to me once again and uh, allowing me the privilege of teaching from John's Gospel, John chapter 10. There are certain Sundays where I, I think the Lord um, intends for me to not trust in myself and my planning for worship because I feel some days like, you ever, you ever watch um, on Peanuts when um, Lucy is holding the football and Charlie Brown comes to, to kick the football and she like, I feel like sometimes God just takes the football right out and Pastor Jamie just kind of falls on his back. Some Sundays I feel like that. I'm feeling that, like that right now. So we're going to pray and we're going to ask the Lord to help us uh, to understand his uh, precious word while I will fall on my back. The Lord's word never falls on his back. So we're going to trust the Lord to do what he can do for us. Uh, John chapter 10. I'm glad to see everyone survived Snowmageddon last week, um, all one inch of its terror that it brought to us, and uh, that you were able to come to church this Sunday. Personally, I'm convinced that uh, weathermen must work for milk and bread companies or something, because whenever there's a slowdown in milk sales or something, they call the weatherman, he makes a prediction, and everyone buys milk, and then we don't get any. It's like, it's like the man who called, uh, cried wolf, and um, we don't get snowmageddon. Well, I'm glad you are at church this morning. Verse 22, I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, and um, as I said, I'm going to pray, and then we will get to work. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is not written, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan 
to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray together. Lord and Father, I trust that your word will accomplish, will accomplish that which you set it to accomplish. That it will not bounce around and return to you void. But through the power of your Holy Spirit, it will do what you are intending it to do. We only ask that you would be gracious to us this morning and give us the benefits of that doing. Open our hearts to receive your word. Open our ears to hear your word. Give us strength and understanding so that we may know and understand that Jesus is in the Father. And the Father is in Jesus. Do this for your son's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Last month on the evening of December 12th, Jewish people all across the globe lit the first candle in a special nine-stemmed candle holder called a menorah. They did this in celebration of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. It's not found in the Bible, but in Jewish history. About 170 years before Jesus was born, a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes sent soldiers to capture Jerusalem to force the Jewish people to abandon their worship of the one true God and instead to worship the many gods of the Greeks. Antiochus Epiphanes forced his way into Jerusalem and into the temple, which he then desecrated by sacrificing a pig on the altar, and by setting up a statue of Zeus in the holy place. Under his rule, the Jews were forbidden from observing the Sabbath. They were forced to eat forbidden foods, and they were forced to worship Greek gods under the penalty of death. This oppression from Antiochus spawned a resistance led by the son of a priest, a man named Judah Maccabee. And though he was outnumbered, the Maccabees miraculously won two battles against Antiochus and drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. The temple was then rededicated to the Lord. The light on the lampstand was relit in the holy place. And on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev, the the temple of God was rededicated to worship of the true God. Hanukkah commemorates that victory, that rededication, by lighting candles, one for every day, for six days, or I'm sorry, eight days. The word Hanukkah means dedication. In Jesus' day, it was simply known as the Feast of Dedication, celebrated in the winter, generally a couple of weeks before we celebrate Christmas. 
As we open the portion of John's gospel, we are in that very time of year. It's winter in Jerusalem, much like it is here in Piqua, though I imagine with a little less snow. Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Festival of Lights, and he's walking the temple grounds, Solomon's colonnade, the remaining vestments of Solomon's great temple, which had long been destroyed and rebuilt. There must be a reason why the gospel writer John sees that as significant, to include that in the opening of this portion of his gospel. As any masterful author would, John is using the background of this text to teach us something or help us to understand something in the foreground of this text. So what we see in the background is God's people remembering the rededication of the temple and restoring right worship of God. And what we see in the foreground is Jesus of Nazareth, who claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself. In Jerusalem, during the Festival of Lights, people were celebrating the Lord's restoration of the true worship of the true God, and Jesus of Nazareth is casting his light through teaching about restoring true worship of the true God. Many years before this, a Syrian king set up worship of a false god in the temple. Judah, Judas Maccabee won it back. Religious leaders in the first century also set up a worship of a false god. And Jesus of Nazareth won it back. Could it be that is what John wants us to see? Well, whatever John wants us to see about the festival of lights, this whole passage is about casting light on Jesus, the Messiah, as God, as God himself. You'll notice what prompts the discourse and the question about Jesus' identity. Verse 24, so, so, which is the same word as therefore. Jesus is walking around the temple during the festival of lights, during the feast of dedication, teaching about the reformation of worship. Therefore, the Jews gathered around him and asked him, tell us, are you really the Christ? Tell us plainly. And what follows in this passage is Jesus' explanation of his identity. Perhaps in the clearest terms in all of the Bible, Jesus says, I am Messiah. But that means much more than you think it means. I am the Son of God, but that means much more than you think it means. Jesus shows us here that he is divine, that he is God. He proves it through his words, and through his works. So what we're going to do this morning is we'll work through the first part of Jesus' answer, which comes in verse 25 to 30, and then we'll look at the second part of Jesus' answer in his rather confusing way he quotes from the Scriptures in verse 31 to 39, and then we will land this morning in verse 40 to 42 as the gospel writer brings in John the Baptist again into his story, and you're left wondering, what does John have to do with anything in this passage? And I think we'll see... It's not as unrelated as it looks at first. So let's take a look. Verse 25. So they ask a question, verse 24. Tell us, are you the Christ? But I want you to understand that you notice this in the way Jesus answers this. This question of theirs, verse 24, it is not humble inquiry. They're not genuinely interested in learning whether Jesus is actually the Christ or not. They had already made up their mind. In fact, they've been trying to get this guy killed since way back in chapter 5. They had made up their mind about Jesus, and so they're probably just looking for more reasons to pick up rocks. 
So the Lord's response to the question is basically, I've already told you I am Messiah. I've already showed you I am Messiah, but you wouldn't believe. This is how he says, verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. So I told you I was Messiah. I showed you I was Messiah, and still you wouldn't believe. He told them that he was the prophet. He told them that he was the one Moses had written about. He told them that he was the son of man. He had authority to execute judgment. He told them that he was the light of the world. He told them that he was the bread from heaven. He even told them that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He told them that he was the shepherd of God's flock. He had already told them he was the promised one, the Messiah. And he had also showed them his works bore witness that he was from God. You remember from chapter 3, Nicodemus understood that perfectly. No one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. The miracles that Jesus had done were specifically chosen, deliberately chosen, to point to his identity. Miracles in the Gospel of John are called signs for that reason. Signs do what? Signs point. And these signs pointed to Jesus as Messiah God. Well, these men heard Jesus' words. They had seen Jesus' works, but they still did not believe. And the reason they did did not believe is probably not the reason that you might expect. Verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Does that seem backwards to you? Usually we think of it more like you're not a Christian because you don't believe. But that is not what Jesus just said. You do not believe because you're not a Christian. It helps us to understand how the Bible speaks of salvation. Even if you skip forward a little bit into verse 27, it feels disjointed. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Is anyone else expecting it to go, my sheep hear my voice and they know me? That's not what he says. It feels disjointed. Christians are not Christians because they believe in Jesus. Christians believe in Jesus because they're Christians. I know that sounds confusing, but consider the way the Apostle Paul describes the process of salvation in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Follow it as he explains it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. You are not saved, Cornerstone, by your faith. You're saved by grace, through faith, which God gave you as a gift. Grace first, faith follows. But it all started with God. The doctrine of election dries up the headwaters of pride. In the Christian's life. You see, because it strips away any right that we think that we have to look down on those who do not believe. Which means no one is without hope. 
We can offer the promise of grace to everyone, no matter how hard-hearted or hate-filled or godless their lives are today. God in his infinite, inexplicable love looked across time and chose to draw you to his son and give you faith to believe. And you believed and you were saved. All of God's grace. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, the apostle Paul says that God chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and blameless. Not because they already were. God saved us not because we were worthy, but he saved us to make us worthy. Which makes the offer of salvation available to all who call upon his name. Because all are unworthy. Why does that matter? Why does it matter so much how it was that God saved you? Why is the doctrine of election such an important doctrine? Because it's important for us. God saw that it was important for us to understand just how unshakable and unassailable are the foundations of our faith. If the Christian life began with the omnipotent God's initiative, then the Christian life will remain safe in His omnipotent hands. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is why probably Jesus says what He says next. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Cornerstone, linger over those words. Linger over the promises, the safe promises in that word. It's like a shelter in a storm. One of the most comforting words I find in the Bible is the word kept. Kept. As in Jude 1, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What comfort that is to a soul drifting in the sea of doubt. Kept by God. Kept for Christ. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. I have kept them which you gave me. I have guarded them. Not one has been lost. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Not the world, not the flesh, not the devil, not cancer, not addiction, not miscarriage, not sin, not unfaithfulness, not doubts. No one. The Father gave them to me. They are mine. They will always be mine. I have guarded them. Not one will be lost. 
Father, who is greater than all, had given you and me and those who call on the name of the Lord to Jesus. And no one will snatch us out of his capable hands. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The obedience of Jesus Christ to his Father is the rock-solid foundation of your soul's security. Your soul is as safe in Christ as Christ is obedient to his Father. My Father has given them to me. I will lose none of them. Not one. Look, if there is an empty seat at the table of God, then God is not God. Not one will be lost. Not one. Not one. Some people ask if a Christian can lose their salvation. Well, it's the wrong question, isn't it? The right question is, can Jesus lose a Christian? If the safety of my soul was up to me, it would never be safe. I lose everything. It's a wonder that I have four children and still have four children. I, I lose everything I own. Jesus is not like me at all. He doesn't lose any of his children. Not one will be lost. Jesus has you. God has you. And then comes verse 30. I and the Father are one. One in essence, one in power, one in purpose. God the Father, Jesus Christ, one. The reason that you are safe in Jesus' hands is because you are safe in God's hands. Because Jesus and God are one. Some folks say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm just not sure what you do with the Gospel of John to make that claim. And most certainly, Jesus' own enemies understood what he was saying. Didn't they? Skip down to verse 33. They knew exactly what Jesus was, was claiming. This is blasphemy, verse 33. You, being a man, you make yourself God. So they pick up rocks to stone him to death. Yeah, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. And he stays their hands. And he stays their hand in a rather confusing way. It's confusing to me as I looked over this passage a lot this week. Really struggled with this portion of John 10. Because what Jesus says, it's strange to me, because what Jesus says is a little bit obscure, for one. But another thing that is difficult about this, Jesus is so calm. There's an angry mob with rocks in their hands. I'd be wetting my pants and running in the other direction. But you know what Jesus does? 
exegetes Old Testament scripture to stay their hands. Skip down to verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. Well, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I'm the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There are two parts to Jesus' answer. This was helpful for me as I studied this this week. Part one, Jesus points to the Bible, to his word. And part two, he points to his works. So it's similar that he did, the same thing he did in verse 25. My word and my works. So let's look at his word. He quotes from a somewhat obscure psalm, Psalm chapter 82, verse 6, where God is speaking to the leaders in Israel, the judges. They're kind of like those who are put entrusted with Israel's care. God had said to them, I say to you are gods, lowercase g, gods. Those who are entrusted by God to judge Israel, they were entrusted by God to ensure social justice in the nation, to rescue the weak, to rescue the needy, to, to protect those who can't protect themselves. God says, you are gods. They're called gods with a lowercase g because they acted in the place of God, capital G. They were meant to ensure social justice for God's people. And Jesus is saying that if Scripture can't be broken, and Scripture calls prominent men gods who are obviously not God, then how much more can the one who is consecrated by God the Father and sent into the world call himself the Son of God? Let me restate that because this is a little complicated. If I'm correct in understanding Jesus' argument, it goes like this. If God uses the word gods, lowercase g, to refer to leaders who are obviously not God, then might it be possible that he would use the term son of God to refer to one who is uniquely consecrated and sent into the world? So Jesus is in this not backtracking on his claim to deity. Nor is he saying, well, everyone's just little gods. You're all little gods. He's staying the hand of his opponents, causing them to think. And in a subtle way, he's causing them to see that there are holes in their argument that he is obviously not Messiah and worthy of death. That's troubling. Because, why? Why stop them? He's not afraid for his life. He's going to give his life just in a few months from now. Why engage in theological conversation with these people who are enemies, who had made up their mind? He is a demon. He's insane. 
Let's kill him with rocks. Blasphemer. I think it's because Jesus is infinitely merciful. And he's patient. Even with the worst of sinners. These men had called Jesus insane. They had called him demonic. Now they called him a blasphemer. And he's staying their hand to give them, I think, one more chance to repent. Do you see how he's repeating himself in this passage? If you can't believe me, believe my works. That maybe you would come to understand and know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I think this is to give them another chance. If my works are not from God, then my works are bla- then my words are blasphemous. And you should throw your rocks. But if my words and my works are from God the Father, then at least believe my works. At least believe the miracles. Because then by believing those, they point to me, and then you would come to know and understand that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. He's giving them another chance. This is a stunning act of divine patience. The Lord standing among a crowd with rocks in their hands, in their hearts, hatred is seething, murderous rage, gnashing at their teeth like they did to Stephen, ready to cast the stone and incur the judgment of Rome to do what was illegal in their day. But they could not bear with this man and his words. And he's standing in front of them, staying their hand, saying, please don't. Just like Stephen would. Have mercy. My unbelieving friend, I'm glad you're at church today. You're here because like these folks, Jesus is giving you another chance. To turn from your sins, to believe in Jesus and to be saved. He's giving you another chance to see him, to believe in him, and to have life in his name. The Bible says the Lord is patient with you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I hope that you do come to repentance today. I hope that you turn away from your sins. I hope you put down your rocks and that you trust Christ to save you. I hope that today you're bold enough to ask the person next to you to tell you about the hope that they have in this man, Jesus Christ. His opponents don't. They try to arrest him, but he escapes their hands because, of course, It's not his time yet. It's a few months away yet. Isn't it interesting? We're in chapter 10 of of the Gospel of John. There's 21 chapters in John. Next week, Jesus, he's going to leave Jerusalem now. Next week is um, our next chapter. It's chapter 11. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then chapter 12, 
That's the beginning of Holy Week. So from chapter 12 all the way to 21 is the one last week of Jesus' life. What does that tell you about how John feels is important in the timeline of Jesus? This is the end of Jesus' public ministry, right here. He had been rejected again. So as Jesus turns away from them and his public ministry in Jerusalem, he crosses the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. And we'll wrap our time together in the last few verses of chapter 10, hoping to answer the question, why would John put this in here? What does John the Baptist have anything to do with this passage? Take a look at verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Many came, many heard, many believed. This sentence, many believed in him there, provides a wonderful contrast to the tragic end of Jesus' public ministry. While the religious leaders in Jerusalem had rejected the Messiah, their Lord, true Israel, the true sheep, the true flock of God did not. The Lord always has a remnant of those who will believe, those who will come, those who have been given by the Father to God the Son, they will come. And I want to end our time together drawing out two ways Verse 41 describes John the Baptist, what it has to do with this passage, and specifically what it has to do with you and I. First, notice how John the Baptist's ministry bore fruit long after he was dead. I don't know if you noticed, but all the stuff that John talks about with John the baptizer, it's all past tense. John's dead already. Jesus had called John the baptizer the greatest man born of a woman, which makes John the Baptist's death one of the most disappointing deaths of all time. Do you, y'all remember how John the baptizer died? He was locked up in prison, and a pervert cut off his head at the behest of a teenage belly dancer who happened to be his half-niece. So it's not like he jumped on a grenade to save a bunch of school children from being killed. I'm not sure why there would be a grenade around school children. (laughs) But it wasn't like a glorious soldier's death. He was locked up in prison, had some doubts about Jesus, probably had those doubts relieved about Jesus, and then suddenly he died. Greatest man who born of a woman, head lobbed off by a pervert. And yet, God caused his ministry to bear fruit long after he was gone. I cannot tell you how encouraging that is to me. How many times, Cornerstone, have you shared the gospel with someone and it just went nowhere? It fell on deaf ears 
Your evangelism ministry ended disappointingly. I've simply lost count of the number of people I have discipled who are no longer following Jesus. I think about them a lot. And my heart breaks over them. And what this verse tells me is that God's Word will always accomplish what He purposes it to accomplish. God may just have a different timeline. Charles Bridges was a 19th century preacher, and he wrote, The seed may lie under the dirt until we lie there and then spring up. I was encouraged by the testimony of a hundred-year-old man trusting in Christ as he recalled the sermon that he heard when he was 15. God used 85-year-old seed to bring forth a harvest. Let that be an encouragement to you, Cornerstone, to keep sharing with your unbelieving friends and neighbors. That person at work who just rejects you over and over, keep sharing. Keep sharing the gospel no matter what, no matter if you see any effect at all. My mom used to have a poster in her office that said, don't measure the day by the harvest, but by the seeds planted. What a healthy way to do work. What a God-honoring way to do work. Friends, the Lord will show himself faithful to his word and to your obedience, I promise you. Second thing, John did no miracles. Everything he said about Jesus was true. I can't think of a better epitaph than that. How many of us aspire to such things? Not much that she did accounted for anything, except that everything that she said about Jesus was true. It's not likely that many of us here are destined to cure a disease or discover a source of renewable energy or to solve world poverty. But if we speak of Jesus truthfully and consistently and faithfully, I'm convinced that matters far more. God may be pleased to bring fruit out of places and ways and through your ministry that you never dreamed possible. How easy it is in our celebrity-obsessed culture that we would be dis- disappointed by just being normal, unremarkable, average people. After all, ever since kindergarten, we were told that we were a unique, beautiful snowflake and the world would greatly benefit from learning your uniqueness. But doesn't the Bible commend a different way? A slower way. Isn't that the reason why the Bible points to examples of farmers sowing seed and waiting patiently for the crop? Isn't that why the Bible commends the daily discipline of an athlete in training? Isn't that why the Bible commends the suffering patience of of an enlisted soldier? John the baptizer is a 
an encouraging reminder to just talk about Jesus accurately and faithfully and consistently. Trust God with the details. Trust God with the fruit. As I said, I cannot tell you as a pastor how encouraging that is to me. How that precious truth lifts heavy burdens off my weary shoulders. Knowing that I've been charged by God to preach the gospel faithfully, consistently, accurately, and that the details are left to God. Learn from John the Baptist. Know that when you share the gospel with your coworkers and your family and your friends, those who are truly given by God the Father to God the Son will come. And it may not come in the timeline that you expect it to come, but those who are truly His will come. And that when you see no fruit on the vine, keep praying, keep sharing. God will be faithful to His Word. God will be faithful to your obedience. Amen? Let's stand to our feet for the prayer of confession. Brother, will you come back and do the last song? During the prayer of confession, we take elements from the Scriptures as God has revealed them to us, allow them to sort of expose our areas of our life where we have not lived up to His Word, and we confess those to the Lord. So would you pray with me as we confess our sins? Lord of glory and Almighty God, the one true God, hear the prayers of your people, my brothers and my sisters. In your mercy, in your kindness, you have undressed us this morning with your word. You have exposed our sin. And we confess the light of your perfect word has revealed pride. We see now how we have trusted in ourselves, looking to our own means. We confess to you that we have often been anxious about the things that are outside of our control. We've even despaired at times. And we know, Lord, that as your servants, our worries and concerns are altogether unfounded. And they demonstrate a lack of trust in the goodness of our God and His power. Will you forgive us of this, O Lord? Help us now in moments of danger and worry and despair to run to you, our strong tower, where we will find safety and be kept for your Son. Keep us from the temptations of trusting in ourselves or the safety of any man. And Lord, thank you for keeping us. 
Thank you for the undeserved safety you supply. Thank you for your capable hands which hold us. We trust that Jesus has done for us what we can't do for ourselves and that in Him we are right before God. Thank you for His faithfulness. And thank you for the reminder of John the Baptizer. Forgive us for giving up on those who've turned their backs on you. Lord, you've never turned your back on us. So we repent for turning our backs on others. Please grant that we would know the patience your Son shows to us, that we might show it to others. And those of us, Lord, who fear to share the gospel in evangelism, would you give us boldness? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to be like John the Baptist and to speak accurately and faithfully and consistently about your son? Even when the world doesn't like to hear it. May we share boldly and lovingly. Please help us to trust you with the results. Do this, we ask, for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name.